Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. All right, Mark chapter 11, now verse 1. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village opposite of you, and as soon as you have entered it, you will find a colt tied, on which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and immediately he will send it here. So they went their way, and they found the colt tied by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said to them, What are you doing loosening the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. Then they brought the colt to Jesus and threw the clothes on it and sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from the trees, and he spread them on the road. Then those who were, went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. And so when he had looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. You may be seated. Dearly Father, as we study your word this morning, I ask that you remove anything that is of me and... Lord, that your spirit will go forth with all boldness. Father, we ask that uh, this time will just be a sweet time where you open our ears and open our hearts to what you have to say so that we might learn more about you and the work that you did for us. In your name we pray. Amen. So Palm Sunday. I'm not sure if anybody has ever been to a church or grew up in a church that did the origami palm branches into a cross. Um, but that's, what, that's how I grew up in church. We always had these palm origamis, and I just remember as a kid, that was like, that was the only thing that stood out to me about Palm Sunday, uh, that and Jesus rode on a donkey. And so that was the only things that I grew up knowing about Palm Sunday is a palm cross and a donkey. And the funny thing is, is the importance of that palm cross to me as a kid was we'd always be sitting there in the pew, my sisters and I, and we'd be sitting there playing with it all service, right? And we'd wait for the first person just to like to pop the pin and then the whole thing unravels and then we'd all go, ooh, you're going to hell. That was, that was like the terrifying thing that we did uh, and we thought of as Palm Sunday. And it was like, if that palm cross unraveled, you know, you were going to hell. And that was like the importance of Palm Sunday for us, that and Jesus came riding in and on donkey. And uh, as I was studying for this um, and studying about, you know, the actual Palm Sunday and getting to know it a little bit more in-depthly than just an origami cross that you go to hell if it unfolds, um, there were some huge things that stood out to me um, with heavy, heavy importance. So this, going into this week, is called Passion Week. And uh, this is going to be the last week of Jesus's earthly ministry before he is uh, crucified. But one of the interesting things that I, I found out about this as I was studying is that there's only eight total events that's captured in all four Gospels. 
And so there's four different stories that are told in all four different Gospels. I mean, many of them, you might have three different Gospels cover a story. Um, you might have two. You might just have one. But this event is covered in all four Gospels. And also, on top of it, I'm going to throw this up on the screen. Here's some more information about how important this last week is in comparison to the actual Gospels. Okay? So in the book of Matthew, two-fifths of Matthew is devoted to this last week of Christ. Three-fifths of Mark is devoted to this last week. One-third of Luke and half the book of John is devoted to this last week of Christ. That's 29 chapters out of the 85 uh, chapters um, of the gospel messages. That's 34% in case those, if you're not like a math wizard, um, neither am I. I had to type it into my calculator to figure it out. But 34% of uh, the Gospels is related to the last week of Christ. And so we can tell that this was obviously meant to be something that was very important to the lives of the disciples. This is something that the disciples, it meant so much so that they decided to write mostly about this. And I, to me, I found it completely amazing as I continue to look through it. But let's start in verse 1, where typically you start if we read in verse 1. Um, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem. What we're going to be looking at, and I've titled this sermon, is perfect victory. You'll see that as we go through the last week of Jesus, it can be, it can be sad. And we're looking at a whole week of leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. And it can be a sad, gloomy time. It's a time that I found myself like almost putting pity on Jesus that he had to go through this. But that's not the case. And so as we read through this entire uh, text and as we study it, I want you to not think with the mindset of pity, but I want you to think with the mindset of perfect victory. That was the mindset Jesus had from the beginning of this week, was perfect victory. The absolute, complete victory that he was going to have at the end of the week. And that's the mindset that I want us to understand that we have to have, is perfect victory. And so the very first thing that we see in our points is victory requires perfect timing. Victory requires perfect timing. And it says, now when? This is opening up and it's giving us a time standard that, we, um, that, that Jesus is uh, holding to. Now, has, are you good with time? Because I've always been good with time. Um, if you tell me that we have to be somewhere at 6 o'clock, my mindset is, okay, we'll be there at 5.30. Um, we'll walk around for 15 minutes and get a feel of what's around. And, uh, and then we'll walk in 15 minutes early and that way we're ready. Um, I, I married into a Spanish family, and their, their definition of timely is not as exact as mine. Um, but uh, have you ever been at the point where you missed something because you were late? Have you ever got to the point where you're rushing insanely because you are running late? Is time just one of those things that you struggle with? And even if it's something that you're amazing with, like myself, I struggle sometimes. I do run late, and when I do run late, it creates like anxiety inside of me because I know something's gonna happen. Has anybody ever missed a plane? Like that's like a big one. 
And, uh, and I'm talking about Mr. Timely. I missed my flight to California once, and I was supposed to be teaching in California, and I completely missed the flight and couldn't teach. And so imagine letting everybody know, oh, yeah, I missed the flight and not going to be there to teach at your event. And, uh, you know, it's embarrassing. But we can get so swamped and so consumed about what's going on that very time that we miss the importance of time. And one of the huge things that I will never forget growing up, and it's, it's ingrained into my head, is I grew up as a swimmer. And so from the age of seven to uh, through up to college, I was a very, uh, I loved swimming and hated it at the same time. It was a love-hate relationship, but it consumed my entire life. I was spending over like about four to five hours a day swimming and training for swimming. And uh, I remember when I was uh, 16, um, I, every year, the University of Maryland uh, threw a huge uh, swim event in the middle of winter called Winterfest. And I would fly down from New Jersey, our whole team would fly down, and uh, we would be at the University of Maryland for you know, this huge meet, and there'd be thousands of people. And it was, to me, like the University of Maryland had the coolest pool. It was, it was a pool that was ground level, and then you had like your bleachers along the side where all the swimmers sat. But then like two stories up was like this like stadium balcony that just went up with, and it held thousands and thousands of people. And it had like these massive pools. So everybody observing looks straight down at the pool and it's just like this awesome, like uh, awesome collegiate uh, experience as you're in high school getting to swim in a pool with, you know, where Michael Phelps trained and different things like that. It was like really, really awesome. But the one thing that I, I remember most about this event, and it was this one particular race, and um, it was finals. And so in swimming, you swim uh, in the morning, and the top 16 make it back for finals at that night. And I happened to be uh, uh, going into finals uh, ranked first. And it was a big deal for me because it was such a big uh, event. And so going into finals, you know, I'm first. So I, I, I go swim all my events in the morning. And swimming is the absolute worst sport in case anybody wants to observe. You sit there for hours upon hours just to watch someone race for a minute and a half. And it's just like if you're a parent or thinking about becoming a parent and you're thinking about the sports that your kids don't ever get them involved in swimming, it's the worst. <laughs> So I did all my events, and I did my three, four hours in the morning. We went back to the hotel. We ate. We rested. I took a nap. I was preparing myself mentally with my teammates. Then we go back for finals. And it's like finals is like the most exciting thing about swimming when you're uh, you know, an athlete. Uh, you're getting there early to do your warm-up, and so you're just swimming laps. And University of Maryland has music underwater, so they're just pumping music underwater while you're swimming so you can listen to it. The crowds are going nuts. They have people dancing, and it's like you have to figure out how to make swimming exciting. And so they just have like DJs and do everything. And so everyone's like all pumped up. And as a swimmer, and as I'm 16 years old, and I'm racing against you know, some big names and going against uh, uh, you know, with all my teammates, and we're all amped up, and our warm-ups end, and the meet begins. And I'll never forget sitting on the bleachers in the zone. Like, I, I used to listen to, like, death metal music to get me, like, in the zone, and I'm sitting on the bleachers, and it's like, duh, 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 duh. And, and I'm, like, I'm getting into it, and I'm, like, you know, I'm sitting there, and it's, uh, to me, it was, like, I'm, I'm there. I'm there. I'm not paying attention to what's going on around me whatsoever. And uh, little do I know, and uh, I said the top 16 make it back. And so uh, the uh, ninth place through 16th place, they compete first. And then uh, the first through the eighth, top eight, they compete second. And so I'm in the zone. I'm going nuts. And, you know, my coach is watching some, some one of my other teammates swimming. 
and he's not paying attention to what's going on. And next thing I know, the, the heat before me is going. And um, I nonchalantly stand up, not paying attention at all what's going around at the pool. I take my headphones off, and I really had to go to the bathroom. And so I find myself walking. They have like a bulkhead that cuts across the pool. And I'm walking to the bathroom, and all of a sudden I see you know, a guy jumping in the stands, going like, like jumping jacks and screaming. But you can't hear him because of how high up he was. And I realize it's my dad. And my dad is screaming. My dad is like the most like mellow, like steadfast human being, like non-emotion person you'll ever meet. And I'm thinking like, okay, maybe someone's like, my mom's having a heart attack. Like we gotta go to the hospital or something. And he's pointing to the race, saying like, okay, they're announcing like everybody that's swimming in the next heat by name, and they're standing up on the blocks, and uh, and they're at lane two, and I'm in lane four, and you know, lane two stands up on the block, and they announce the person's name, and now I'm looking, and I'm like, oh my gosh, that's my race, and so I'm sprinting, ripping off my shirt, ripping off my sweatpants, and uh, I was I was wearing socks. Uh, I know it's a weird thing to think you're on a pool deck and you're wearing socks, you have to keep your feet warm. So I'm trying to take my socks off and, you know, I'm jumping around and uh, I'm running by my swim coach and one of the girls is standing next to my swim coach. I didn't have my goggles, I had long hair at the time, so I had a cap, I didn't have a cap. And so I grab the girl's stuff out of her hands, I'm putting the cap on, the cap splits completely open, I throw the cap, I'm throwing on her goggles and I'm getting there, they're announcing my name and I'm running and they announce my name and it's like a pause, like no one stands up, it's like, okay, you know, Russ ranked number first going into the meet, uh, you know, where is he? <laughs> and so I, I'm running and, you know, I, I uh, still have my drag suit on. It's like another suit that you wear over. Um, I wore Speedos at the time. And uh, it's like a drag suit. It's like a less embarrassing suit that you wore over it so you're not walking around like in a Speedo all the time. And so I'm st I stand up on the block and I have my drag suit on and I have, you know, the goggles that are like pink and I... And, <laughs> My coach was 6'8". He looks like Shrek. He was literally like 6'8". You hear him scream, take your drag suit off. So now I'm standing up there. I, I take my drag suit off, and uh, everyone else goes. And uh, not to tell you what happens in the rest of the story, because remember, I, didn't, I still had to go to the bathroom. So you can, your mind can only imagine you know, what's going on before I jump in. Um, but <laughs> but I, was, I was so embarrassed that at the end of the race, like, I just, like, just wanted to get out, and I went, I went to the locker rooms, and I turned the shower on, and I sat in the, in the shower for, like, an hour, just because I almost missed one of the most important races of my life at that time, and it was just because I was distracted on getting in the zone, like, I was doing everything right in my eyes, but my timing was way off, and that's the idea here, is that if you want victory, your timing can't be off. Victory requires perfect timing. You see, we're going to look at Jesus' timing in this particular instance because it is absolutely perfect. Um, like any devout Jewish man, uh, he would be making his way to Jerusalem for the Passover feast that he's getting ready to partake in. But I want to show you guys exactly how perfect God's timing is, and Jesus fulfilling God's timing to the T, and it's going to be Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through uh, 26, and bear with me as I read all of this. Uh, we were joking as we were making the slides. I didn't realize how long this actually was, um, but 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most hot, holy. Um, 
Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and to build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks, and the street shall be built again and the wall, even in a troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the Prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood, and till the end of the war, desolations are determined. Now, you guys are all probably like, what the heck did you just make me read? And uh, it's kind of confusing, but I'm going to break it down for us in a simple way. Now, this breakdown is not simple whatsoever, so I took something that was like insanely complex of like 100 pages to understand. I, I, I put it all on the next slide. That's 100 pages into one slide. So now I'm going to try to explain to you guys what we just read um, because it, it is truly interesting to understand in Daniel uh, the perfect timing of Christ in this particular event. Okay, so he said in Daniel, 62 weeks plus a seven weeks period. 62 plus seven is 69. Welcome to Russ's math class. I am really good at this, so let's go. 62 plus seven is 69 weeks. So now we take 69 weeks and we multiply it by seven years, which we see in Daniel chapter Chapter 9, verse 2 is a seven-year period. So 69 times seven years is 483 years. You guys are still tracking with me? We take 483 years and we multiply by 360 days in a year. Now, I'll stop there because you probably think that I am an idiot for saying there's 360 days in a year because there's 365. The Jews go off a lunar calendar, so there's 360 days in a year. So I'm not too far off my rocker just yet. So 483 years times 360 days brings you to a total of 173,880 days. That is a lot of days. Now, on March 4th, 445 B.C., Artaxerxes made a decree in Nehemiah chapter 2 to rebuild the temple. If you add 173,880 days to that exact date that's prophesied in Daniel, you will get April 6, 32 AD, to the exact day. And if you look at the month of Nisan, which Jesus is getting ready to prepare for the feast, it ends up being the day that he's going to be coming in on this donkey is exactly April 6, 32 AD. Jesus fulfilled a prophecy hundreds and hundreds of years prior, 483 years he fulfills this prophecy, to the exact day he walks in, 173,880 days later, he's walking, he come, not walking, he's riding in on a donkey, to the exact day to fulfill this prophecy. So you want to talk about victory having perfect timing? His timing is immaculate. He fulfills a prophecy hundreds of years old, in order to show that this is the exact time that I need to come in in order for the word of God to be fulfilled. And so he's fulfilling the word of God by coming in to Jerusalem on this exact day. He had been waiting for this exact day his entire life to start going into Jerusalem. This final week of his life begins with him fulfilling a prophecy that has 173,880 days. I'm sure you might be confused after all of that. I'm not, obviously I'm not like a, uh, a teacher. And so it's hard for me to, you know, put it all down. But if you guys want to look into it, if you look into the prophecy fulfilled, you'll find hundreds of pages that you guys can look into. But the idea here is that Jesus 
knew that in order for him to have victory, it had to be done with perfect timing. He couldn't be late. He couldn't be early. He had to be at just on time. You see, we cannot allow ourselves to miss victory because of our timing. Timing is all about God's timing, not our timing. If we ever try to fit our timing into God's uh, timing, it usually doesn't work. Because God has a specific timing that he wants us to follow in order to make things happen. You see, God's timing is perfect. And one of the things we have to realize is that our time is not. And if we truly want to live in victory, we have to align ourselves with God's timing. Amen? Now, as we continue, we can actually go into verses 2 through 6. And it says, And he said to them, Go into the village opposite of you, and as soon as you have entered uh, entered it, you will find a colt tied, and when no one, uh, which no one has sat. Loose it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say to them, The Lord has a need of it. And immediately he will send it there. So when they were on their way, they found the colt by the door outside on the street, and they loosed it. But some of those who stood there said, what are you doing loosening the colt? And they spoke to them just as Jesus had commanded, so they let them go. The next point that we're going to be looking at is victory requires perfect obedience. Victory requires perfect obedience. And here we are going to look at it. There's like a trivecta of perfect obedience happening just in these couple of verses that we read. But the first one that I want to point out is uh, the disciples' obedience. You got to think how weird of a request this is that Jesus is saying. He's saying, listen, um, before we enter into the town, I want you guys, I want two of you, you guys go. Go into the town. You're going to walk in. And when you walk in, right to the right, there's going to be this, this colt tied up to a fence. I want you to untie it and then bring it back to me. Oh, and if anybody says anything to you, you know, uh, just tell them yeah, the Lord has need of it. And so I couldn't imagine being these two disciples. They're like, okay, this is the weirdest freaking request like anybody could ever ask me. A, uh, a colt that's never been ridden is considered useless. You can't throw things on its back and try walking it. Um, you can't, I mean, there's a, there's a term about being a donkey, about how stubborn they are. I don't know if anybody's ever, like, you know, encountered a donkey or tried leading a donkey or tried riding a donkey. Um, but they are stubborn. And especially if they haven't been broken in yet. And so Jesus is telling, hey, I want you guys to go get a donkey that's never been broken, that's never been led, that you now have to bring back to me. And uh, I couldn't imagine being these two disciples showing up into this town where you don't know anybody, you don't know what's going on, and you see that donkey and you're like, hey, is that the donkey? Is that the donkey? The thing? And then you walk over and you start untying it and you don't knock on the door. Hey, can I, can I have that donkey? No, you, Jesus said, go, you'll see the donkey untie it. And if anybody sees you doing that, says anything, and so now they're untying it, and someone, hey, hey, you stealing that donkey? Is that, is, what are you doing? You can't just, you know, take someone's donkey. And they're, oh, Jesus has need of it. The Lord has need of it. Oh, okay, fine, go. That, that's exactly what happened. The perfect obedience. Jesus gives them this weird request. They go and they follow it to a T. What does it say? It says that they say exactly what Jesus told them to do. And what happens at them actually doing it? The guys are like, oh, Jesus needs it? Yeah, go ahead. Take it. To me, it's like this, this crazy idea of doing a crazy event. The second type of obedience that we see is Jesus' obedience. Jesus' obedience. I'm going to throw up here. It's Zechariah 9.9. 9. Um, 
And it says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is obedience to his father to fulfill scripture yet once again. This is Zechariah 9.9. He's fulfilling scripture by choosing to come in on a colt that has never been ridden before. It's a weird thing. Absolutely weird thing. But he knew that in his perfect obedience, in order to have victory, he had to listen to exactly what his father had said. Now, Jesus, his whole life was a reflection of this type of attitude. Look at Romans chapter 5, verse 19, to give you an idea of Jesus' actual type of obedience. It says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteousness. Righteous. Isn't that amazing? Because of his obedience, we are made righteous. That is an attitude, and just it's an attitude that I aspire to. I am not very obedient. And one of the things that I realized um, growing up, really, you know, I, I'm definitely not obedient. You can ask my parents. Um, they prayed for me, and they had everybody in the church praying for me for the longest time period. But um, also, when I turned 16, that's when you're allowed to become a beach lifeguard. Um, at the Jersey Shore. And so um, in, at, at the Jersey Shore, you, you know, you only have the summers to lifeguard. And so it was a summer job. And uh, one of the things that I absolutely wanted to do was be a part of this, this, this uh, small town uh, beach called Normandy Beach, because I had two friends that lifeguarded there, but not only two friends that lifeguarded there, all summer long on the Jersey Shore, like the thing to go to on Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays, Friday nights are lifeguard competitions where it's competitions between all the beaches and they compete to show off who's the best set of lifeguards. And Normandy Beach was, you know, famous for, you know, winning every single tournament. So I was like, yeah, this is, this is the beach that I want to be a part of. And so I went through my tryouts and there was like 50 people. They, you know, whittled it down to three people. They hired three people. I happened to be one of those people that I hired. Um, but what no one told me is your rookie year, how miserable it is lifeguarding. Um, they mess with you beyond belief, and you just have to do whatever they tell you to do. And uh, I'll never forget, um, it was like my, the first week that I started lifeguarding, it's like they're like legitimately training you. Like they're doing drills, they're practicing. And so it's not until the second week that they start actually messing with you. Because they want to make sure that you can actually, like in case someone is drowning, that you can actually save them before they start messing with you. And so I'll never forget, it was the second week, and I'm sitting, uh, you know, there's three of us rookies, and we're just all, like, waiting, like, okay, when does this punishment start to happen? And uh, the, first, the first thing they told me to do um, was go get the oar lock key for the boats. Now, you know, the oars, um, they don't lock in at all. And so there's no such thing as an oar lock key. And so they tell me, hey, the beach next to us borrowed our Orlock key. Russ, we need you to go get it back. And the Orlock key is really expensive, and they're probably going to say they lost it or they let someone else borrow it. Don't, let, don't take no for an answer. Um, you have to get this Orlock key despite everything. And, uh, and so, you know, I'm 16 years old, and I'm all zealous, and these guys are telling me what to do, and I'm trying to impress. Like, because I heard that if you could impress uh, Bob Holligan, who was our boss, we called it, it was Bob's Muscle Beach, is this jacked guy. Um, 
you know, your life would be easy for the rest of your rookie year. And so I was like, all right, I got this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go impress them. And so I go down to the next beach, and uh, they have, like, it's a smaller beach than us. They only have two lifeguard stands, and we had four. But on their two lifeguard stands, they had, like, six guys on each stand. And uh, I go up, and it's, like, all these, like, buff, like, guys. Some guys are doing push-ups at the bottom of the lifeguard stand. Some guys are doing pull-ups. And then there's, like, two, like, the head honchos sitting there jacked up just, like, staring at me. And I was like, yeah, can I, uh, can I get the Orlock key? And they're like, oh, yeah, we don't have the Orlock Lee. We gave it to the next beach down. You can just go get it from them. And I'm thinking in my head, okay, you know, this is, they prepared me for this. Like, they told me, like, they're going to try playing it off like they don't have it. And so I said, no, you guys are going to give me the Orlock key, and you're going to give it to me now. <laughs> and uh, these guys stand up, and they're, you know, and I'm acting all tough, and they're like, the Orlock key's at the next beach down. And I was like, yeah. I grabbed, you know, one of their torpedoes, you know, like the Baywatch torpedoes. I grabbed it out of the sand, and they had six of them lined up. And I went by, knocked one over, knocked the next one over, knocked the next one over. Kept on going until they're all down. Then I took the last one, and I threw it at the lifeguard stand. I go, you guys are going to give me this Orlock key right now. All the guys stopped. They came down, tackled me, have my face in the sand. And they're like, the key is at the next beach. And I was like, just give me the key. <laughs> I refused to leave until they got my boss on the phone and made him run down to come get me to bring me back. I never wanted to listen to anything that they ever told me to. Again, so they would tell me, oh, yeah, you know, I think there's someone drowning out there. Nope, I'm sitting on the wood. You guys are not getting me this time. <laughs> like anything that you could, I did not want to listen to them. And it wasn't until later, uh, a couple years later, I think it was four years later, I had my first, like, I was, the, I was the lieutenant, so I was in charge of all the rookies. And I remember I walked up, you know, I'm like, I'm going to be nicer than they were to me because I can tell you even worst stories. My mom cried one time when I came home. I had like, my chest was bleeding from something they made me do. And it was just like, it was terrible. So I was like, ah, I'm going to be nicer to my rookies. And so I said, hey, go down and get the Orlock key at the next beach. So, you know, so uh, Andrew, he's running down to the next beach. And they're like, yeah, we gave it to the beach next door. He runs down to the next beach. They kept on doing it and doing it. It's like a thing every lifeguard knows. There's no such thing as an Orlock key. You send them down to the next lifeguard stand. And every lifeguard stand let me tell you something. This kid taught me a lesson on obedience. I'm sitting on the lifeguard stand waiting for him to come back. One hour, gone. He never came back. Two hours, kids never come back. Three hours, still hasn't come back. Four hours, he still hasn't come back. Five hours, he still hasn't come back. Six hours, he still hasn't come back. Seven hours, I see a four-wheeler coming down the beach with him on the back of it. The kid ran on sand for 11 miles looking for this Orlock key because they kept on sending him down. He gets back. He's riding up on the four-wheeler, and he's holding the key like this. <laughs> I didn't have the heart to tell him that, you know, that, that's not a key. They just gave you some random key because they felt bad because <laughs> they saw, you know. But that's the type of obedience we need to have. We just need to listen. Despite what they tell you to do, despite what they make you go through, whatever God asks you to do, you have to do it. Why? Because we are supposed to be submissive under God. And that brings us to the, back to the trifecta. The, first, it was the disciples' obedience to go get this donkey, a weird request. The second was Jesus' obedience. And third was the donkey's obedience. 
Remember what I told you is that he was unbroken colt that had never been ridden before. And what does Jesus do? They lay their shirts on it. He sits on it. He rides it into Jerusalem. It doesn't say it bucked him off 12 times. It doesn't say that, you know, he had to stop and kick the thing in the legs to get it going and smack its butt to make it happen. No, he just simply rode it into Jerusalem. Why? It's truly amazing. The donkey was subject to Jesus' authority. It was ultimately new where it stood in light of Jesus, and it was going to be obedient because of who Jesus was. You see, that is perfect obedience. Now, Christianity is, uh, I was talking to Zach, and he's telling me, you know, Christianity is countercultural. You know, we don't do the things that the world does. And some of the things that we do looks weird to the world. I was always growing up like, yeah, Christians are weird. Like, I was a Christian, but I was like, yeah, Christians are like weird, weird, though. So I'd be like, I had worldly friends, and I went to worldly school, and I was just like, yeah, yeah, Christians are weird. I'm a Christian, but not like the weird Christians, you know, because I wasn't as in-depth in my relationship with God. But, you know, there's a lot of things we do that the world thinks is weird, and if you think about it, it can be looked at as weird. But there's also things that God might ask us to do that seems weird. And where do we align ourselves with his obedience on those things that you know, he tells us that might seem a little weird or might look a little weird um, to the church? One of the things I absolutely love was David's prayer. It's Psalm chapter, chapter 143, verse 10. And it says, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Your spirit is good. Lead me into the land of uprightness. He says, teach me to do your will. This is David. David is saying, God, you know what? You have to teach me how to do this because everything inside of me does not want to be obedient to what you want. But if you want victory, you have to have perfect obedience. But David knew that everything inside of him, his flesh, everything about him, didn't want to listen to the specific things that uh, God wanted him to do. You see, it's only natural for us to be disobedient to the things of God. And I, I absolutely love my children so much. And uh, we arranged our entire house. If you ever come to our house and you have kids, like you don't ever have to worry about things breaking because we've arranged our house and decorated our house so that nothing that can break that matters is accessible to kids. And so one of the things we did is we, we had a party, and so we moved a table next to the couch, and we put a lamp on top of that table. And we used to not have that table next to the couch because our littlest one, Easton, used to climb on it, and then I would catch him standing on top of the glass table like this, you know, doing his dance and whatever it was. And so we, we moved it, and he finally got to a point where now the table can sit there and he won't touch it. Now we add this lamp to it. And my wife and I are looking at Charlie. Yeah, you think, you know, it's, it's a glass, like, lamp. It's pretty expensive, like, easily. Like, it, it looks like it's cracked already because um, that's, like, the style, I guess, of it, you know, the cool style. But it looks like if you touch it, the whole thing's going to shatter even more and break. Um, so it's, like, one of those, like, really fragile-looking things. And we're like, yeah, you think Easton's going to play with it? He might be over that. And uh, so it was, like, two days of having the lamp next to the front door. And i laying down on the couch, not paying attention to anything. And I hear, like, a table just, like, move, like, sliding out. And he's trying to climb up onto the table and pushing the lamp slowly over. And I was like, Easton, Easton, come here, come here. He looks at me and goes like this, no joke. <laughs> and, and keeps on pushing the table. And uh, 
it's, in, it's naturally inside. No one taught him how to be disobedient. It's just naturally who we are because of sin. And so these are the things. You have David praying, teach me to do your will, for you are my God. He puts himself in light of God. He says, listen, you are my God. I am underneath you. Teach me how to do your will because I want to be perfectly obedient. Because in perfect obedience, there comes victory. You see, as we continue, we're going to be looking at verses 7 through 10. And it says, Then they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their clothes on the road, and others cut down leafy branches from trees and spread them on the road. Then those who went before and those who followed cried out, saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the, is the kingdom of our father David that comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. The third point is victory requires perfect praising. So we have the first point was victory requires perfect timing. Second point is victory requires perfect obedience. Now we're going to be looking at praising. Victory requires perfect praising. You see, we first have to understand what's going on, and I'm not going to go too in-depth in this, so if you guys want to know more about this, feel free to study on your own time, but we see them laying down palms. Now, why would they lay down palms? What significance does palms have? You see, palms symbolized goodness, well-being, and victory. And so they're laying down these palms at the, at, uh, as Jesus is coming into the city to show victory, to show well-being, to show goodness. You see, palms are actually depicted on Jerusalem's coins. Any important building in Jerusalem also has a palm on it. And if you look at uh, King Solomon, when he was building the temple, he had people etch in palm branches into the walls. And so palms were this important thing that just represented victory. And so as Jesus is coming in, they're getting ready to praise him. And so they're preparing, you know, this, this road of victory for him. And what do they say? They're shouting. They're shouting, Hosanna. This word means save us. And it's a prayer and a praise. Have you guys ever just like been praising God and like, God, I need saving? Like, that's basically what they're doing. They're praising him. It's almost like you say hallelujah at church, knowing like, okay, that was really convicting and I need to change or it's really great. They're screaming a prayer and a praise at the same time of Hosanna, God, save us. Save us. And just so you know, it was, it's been a hundred years, over a hundred years that Rome has taken over and they were under Roman impression. And so they think the king's coming in, is gonna, he's going to save them from all of Rome and he's going to put to shame this government and, and change everything. And they're, they're singing. This is actually coming from Psalms uh, 118, 19 through 29. That's what they're actually it's singing. And, uh, and as they're saying it, it's like almost like, you know, like at the stadiums nowadays when we do the wave, and it's just slowly going. That's basically what's going on. So you have one person screaming, Hosanna, and then the next group of people are singing, blessed is he who comes in. It's like this like beautiful like, choir of praise, like the wave going through. That's what they're doing. They're preparing this, uh, this victory, um, this victorious walking in. That's why we, get, we call it the triumphal entry, because it was, it was a symbol of triumph. Um, but we can't forget, they're praising him in a certain way the way that a king should be praised when he comes in. Now, it's important that we praise a king or praise God the way that they want to be praised. 
We can't praise them the way that we think that they should be praised. We need to praise them the way that they are told, they tell us to praise. Because they, God, is going to tell us how to perfectly praise him. You see, Jesus did not want praise up until this point in ministry. If you see him all throughout the gospel message up until this point, he might heal somebody. He says, listen, don't go tell anybody that it was me. The disciples come to him, hey, you ready to announce that you're going to be the Messiah? No, the time has not yet come. He's not ready to be praised up until this point. And so we have to pay attention to how God wants us to praise him. You see, the whole point of worship is to do what pleases God. Not what pleases me. Not what makes me feel good. Not how I think that I should praise God. It's how God wants to be praised. You see, you have to remove yourself completely when it comes to praise. Remove everything about you. Because we, have, we want to take on praise. We want to be praised for the things that we do. We want gratification of the things that we accomplished. But if God accomplished them, we can't take any credit. We have to remove ourselves completely. We have to remove ourselves completely from being praise in God. You see, it brings us to our next couple of verses of how would God like us to praise him. Now, I have three verses that I'm going to go over, but there's more ways that if you read through scripture how God wants to be praised. These are just three ones that I happen to pick out. The first one is in Hosea 14, verse 2. It says, Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, receive us graciously, for we will offer sacrifices of our lips. The first way God wants to be praised is with our lips. He wants our lips to praise him. Another way, it's Psalms 100, verse 2. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. We talked about this uh, a couple weeks ago in the book of James. Our praise should produce singing. Finally, Psalm 134, verse 2. Lift your hands uh, in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. He wants us to lift our hands up. When you're singing a worship song, you guys ever wonder where, you know, you always see like the people raising their hands and uh, you know where it came from? Scripture. God instructs us how to praise. He wants praise done a certain way. You see, victory requires perfect praising. You see, the crowd finds themselves, you know, singing this, this chapter out of Psalm 118, uh, I said 19 through uh, 29. But if we look at it, another depiction, not in Mark, but the same exact story that we're going over right now, in Luke, as the crowd is getting into it, and as they start praising louder, the Pharisees go to Jesus, quiet them. Quiet them. We do not need them praising you. The Pharisees did not want them praising you. And what was Jesus' reply? If they kept silent, even the stones will praise. Isn't that amazing? He's like, in perfect praise, praise is going to happen. If you are victorious, that means you're operating in perfect praise, and praise is going to happen no matter what. You, can't, you can silence the people, but guess what? The rocks are going to start praising. Isn't that absolutely amazing? Victory was seen in the praise that these people are inviting them into the city of Jerusalem. Yeah, the beautiful truth, if we really want to you know, make it about ourselves, because why else would we praise um, if it didn't gratify us in some way, shape, or form? 
right? That's how, that's how my, in my flesh my mind thinks. Why would I do something that's not going to provide any sort of gratification? If you're that type of person, you know, and you follow along with me, which is not necessarily the right mindset, but when we praise God with this type of perfect praise, um, we ourselves will find ourselves perfectly pleased. That's one of the blessings of praising a God that deserves to be praised, is we'll find ourselves perfectly pleased by praising him. God tells us that we need to praise him. And as we praise him, he's going to give us a sense of being pleased. It's something that he's not just going to leave us hanging with, okay, you guys have to do this. Um, if you want victory in your lives, you have to have this perfect praise, this perfect and complete praise. You have to do it the way that I want to, but it's just for my, my glorification. We should have the heart to praise God and the heart to praise him for what he's done for us and who he is. It should automatically happen. Even if we don't get anything out of it whatsoever, we should be praising him for who he is and what he's done for us. Amen? Amen. But if we want to have perfect victory, we have to have perfect praise. Finally, as you know, we're coming up to an end in, in this final little section of, uh, um, sorry, couldn't think of it, Palm Sunday. <laughs> I couldn't think of it what it was. Um, but Palm Sunday, we're going to look at verse 11. And it's the final verse of this section. And it says, and Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So when he looked around at all things, as the hour was already late, he went to Bethany with the twelve. You see, our fourth and final point about uh, victory is victory requires perfect calculation. Victory requires perfect calculation. And where was Jesus? That's my first question for you. In this scripture, where do we see him? We see him in Jerusalem, and particularly it says, and Jesus went into Jerusalem and into the temple. So particularly, we see him in two different places. We see him in Jerusalem and in the temple. Well, does that have to do with, you know, perfect calculation? Well, we see him inspecting the temple, and we see him inspecting God's people. And if you want for extra credit to go home and look it up, but it's Malachi chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. Um, it's, it's a beautiful thing of where it says that Jesus has the right to go into the temple and inspect. And it's one of the things that he's going to do. And so we see him operating the way that he's supposed to be doing, um, but... We have to understand the importance of him being in Jerusalem at this time, at this very moment, but not just in Jerusalem, at the most notable place in Jerusalem. Why is this important? Look, uh, John chapter 11, verse 57. Look at this for me. Now, both the chief priest and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where he was, that's Jesus, he should report it that they might seize him. There was a price on Jesus' head. You see, to me, it's absolutely amazing because he's at the temple, he's in Jerusalem, at the feast, you know, walking in obedience of God at the perfect timing of where he needs to be, but now we look at him with this perfect calculation. And this perfect calculation, it is, think of this. Jesus has the courage not to hide he did some sort of calculation to decide that I am not going to hide. 
I'm not going to hide from the Pharisees. I'm not going to hide from the Romans. I am going to be walking in obedience with perfect praise and everything perfect to be at this very moment where I'm making a calculation in my head where I'm saying, you know what? Yeah, they're going to try to arrest me. They're going to throw me on trial, and I'm going to eventually have to endure the cross. But there's a calculation where he knows. We can't, we can't separate the fact that, that Jesus is all-knowing, that he knows what's going to happen. We, he knows that what he's getting ready to walk into, but he still decided to do it. He made a perfect calculation. He said, listen, this all adds up to what I should be doing. You see, he knew very well what awaited him when he got to Jerusalem. And he wasn't concerned with the praising. And he wasn't concerned with everything that was going on around him because he knew what was going to happen six days later. He knew what he was getting ready to walk into. He knew what he was going to have to face. You see, Jesus has the courage not to hide from these authorities because he perfectly calculates the outcome of what's to come. It's Luke chapter 14, verse 28. It says, For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it? This is a verse that we all probably have read before. But who starts something without making sure that they have enough to finish it? You're calculating the cost of the, the job. Um, if you're, uh, uh, one of the funniest things that I thought we did as, uh, on our first house, um, my wife was very, very, very pregnant. And uh, I mean, like, okay, this was, the, this was the day of or the day before she went into labor and had to go to the hospital. Um, we had a very small Cape Cod house, like it's a Northeast style, where everything's like closed off. And our living room and our kitchen, you know, they were right next to each other. And there was a wall that divided them, so you had a doorway that went into the kitchen. And we had been talking about it for the longest time of, you know, taking down the wall and making it like an open floor concept. And I think it was the day before she gave labor, she went out with her mom and uh, she came home and I had a hole in the wall. And, and I had started, you know, pounding through, and they walked into the house, and, like, if anybody, like, pounds through or demos, like, drywall, like, you know how much dust there is. And so she's, like, fully pregnant, like, getting ready to, like, you know, have the baby just, like, fall out of her at this point. And she walks in, and it's like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, it's probably not healthy for you to be breathing in with my baby inside of you. And so she had, we had, to, I had to open up all the windows, and they had to go out to, like, uh, lunch or dinner or something. Um, to wait for everything to, to settle, but I didn't count the cost of what it was going to, you know, do. So I put <laughs> this gets even funnier. I put the hole in the wall, so I, now I have to like build it in a way that like it's acceptable. Because now, what happens when you have kids? Everybody wants to come visit the kid, and so now we're gonna have all this guests coming to like come see the kids. So now I have to like build, rebuild the wall, so, like, this window now that I made um, to make it look like you know somewhat of a. Uh, you know, like, it was meant to be like that. And, you know, my solution was uh, we, um, you know, I, I put molding all around the window and made it look all nice. And, um, you know, we didn't count the cost of how much it was on cost to actually, like, get a granite breakfast bar. And so what I do, we went, uh, you know, my father-in-law and I, we went out to uh, Home Depot and we bought plywood. And uh, we built a breakfast bar out of plywood. And uh, instead of putting cabinets on the other side like we had planned, I built like a, a base 
and I just put plywood there, so we had open shelving, you know, really cool, like open shelves. It wasn't pretty at all. Then we painted it black, and we're like, okay, you know, how can you make plywood look pretty? You know, we're gonna get this shiny black, we painted it black. Let me tell you something. That breakfast makeshift bar that we built, uh, you know, the day that my wife was giving into labor, it probably stayed in our house for probably like a year and a half to two years before, <laughs> before we decided, okay, now it's time to like, we've saved up and let's put money down for the cabinets. We did not count the cost whatsoever. We had a plywood breakfast bar in our house. The first thing you see when you walk in uh, for two years before we decided, okay, yeah, now we gotta be grown-ups and actually make our house like look nice. Um, but we had no idea, I had no idea that how much a slab of uh, um, granite cost or how intricate they have to measure, like they pull out lasers and everything and that's why you know, it has to be perfect. And uh, I had no idea what it took. I just decided to blindly one day put a hole in our wall and, uh, and then six hours later, you know, go to the hospital with my wife to give birth to come home to this hole in my wall. I was foolish and I realized, and one of the things I've, I've realized about myself is I do these things all the time. Um, counting the cost is a, is a simple thing. Um, many people plan, they prepare, they do these things. Um, for which you're intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost. If you're gonna build this tower, you don't wanna get you know, halfway done and then just say, oh yeah, I can't do it anymore. It's, it, that's foolish. Everybody can say, yeah, that's foolish thinking. But I still would start building the tower. You know, I get overzealous, I get uh, over eager to accomplish something. And I do not do the perfect calculations to see if I can even do it. If it's in my bandwidth, should I say yes to this? Should I say no to this? But if I say no to this, oh, it's gonna, it's gonna hurt that person. But if I say yes to it, I'm not gonna be able to do it the way they want me to do it. And we can get caught up in it, but if we don't actually count the cost, there's going to be problems. If Jesus did not perfectly count the cost, who knows what it would have looked like for us. Imagine him perfectly counting the cost, saying, listen, it is the only time that they can arrest me. That's, that's Jesus' Jesus's mindset right now. They, he's escaped them in different avenues, where he was in a city, the Romans heard about him doing miracles, they show up, but Jesus was already gone. Well, this is an event that every devout Jewish man was going to be at in Jerusalem. He was going to be there. There was no mistaking. They had time to prepare for Jesus to be there. Imagine if he said, you know what? I really don't want to get arrested. I really don't want to go through a trial. Uh, I really don't want to, you know, go on that cross. Um, so I'm deciding not to. What does that mean for us eternally? See, he counted the cost. You see, victory requires perfect calculation. He counted the cost, and the perfect calculation, he said, is love. To me, that is the most amazing aspect of this entire story, that he counted the cost, and in this equation that he was going, it equaled love. Love was more important than the trial, was more important than the beatings that he was gonna take, then was more important than him hanging on a cross, love. You see, it says in John, no greater love than this for a man to lay down his life for his friends. His perfect calculation came out to love and he decided to do it. To me, it is one of the most amazing things about you know, the life of Jesus, because I know how selfish I am as a human being. I know how much I only wanna do things that gratify me and work in my favor. But yet Jesus 
decides, no, it has nothing to do with me. And we're going to look, I mean, ultimately we know what happens, and we know what's going to happen at the second coming and how great it is of the perfect victory that he has. But he says, listen, I am going to declare to Jerusalem who I am publicly because of my perfect victory. You see, perfect victory isn't going to be completed until a week from this moment. But he knew that why he was calculating. He knew what steps he had to take in order to get there. Because victory requires perfect calculation. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.